from the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine. Available on approved credit. Some conditions apply. See store for details. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Featuring musical guest Sting. The history of headphones. Their roots date back to the U.S. Navy of the 1910s. All the way up to the earbuds we have today, thanks to aging rockers worried about their hearing. Plus, we'll take you behind the scenes of a live music video. I said we'll take you behind the scenes of a live music video. (laughs) And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Did you see that tweet I posted on the Geeks and Beats Twitter account? Which one? Uh, The one of the uh, director live directing Green Day. No, how did I miss that? Hang on. Oh, you got to check it out right now because okay. we'll talk about it. All right, hang on. Hang on. For people who don't have any experience in a television production environment like what we're watching here, we've got three people uh, in this control room that you can see in this shot. There's probably a lot more, but you get the three primary guys right here. There's one on the left, one in the middle who's standing, and he's the one who's giving these, you know, standby take two type stuff. One, three, two, one, then you've got a guy at the far end uh, as well. My favorite part is that the guy closest to the camera on the far left is what appears to be conducting. Yeah. This right, now. right. So television control rooms are laid out very similar to air traffic control towers in so far as if you look at the structure from left to right of the room, um, much like air traffic control towers from left to right, the guy at the far left is responsible for the plane before it takes off, and then he hands over responsibility uh, as the plane moves to be either take off or land. And similarly, in TV land, the guy on the far left is responsible for what's about to happen. The guy in the middle standing is responsible for what is presently happening. And then the guy on the far left, who is the switcher, is the one who's responsible for actually what's going to happen next. Is, is that a standard layout? That is a pretty standard layout. Uh, so you've got the assistant director there on the left. He is What he's doing is, is he's telling the director who's giving you a standby to take two type commands what's coming up. You can hear every once in a while he says two bars. Four bars. And he's letting the director know the, where we are in, the, in this particular point in the song. Because what would have happened long before this was a live television environment is they would have done a rehearsal where the guy on the left, the assistant director, would have made notes with the director about what they would have wanted to do at particular moments. When when the song hits the bridge, maybe we want to pull back and show a wide shot before cutting to the guy on guitar. So they've got a plan. And so he's helping the guy know what's coming up next so that he can keep an eye on it. And as you can see there, on the wall of screens in front of them, he's got eight separate cameras on these musicians. Is, I wonder if this is typical for a music video. Probably, is, you know, I'm I probably is, probably is. This is live television. So I would suspect that most music videos aren't done live. They're edited. 
so they wouldn't be in this scenario. But in a television environment like a Saturday Night Live or any other type of show where they would have that, they would have multiple rehearsals in advance, get a sense as to what they wanted to do with the look and the feel. And that poor schmo at the far end of the screen there, mm. who is the switcher, he's the one responsible for actually pressing all those buttons. And what he's supposed to do is he's supposed to wait for the take or the snap or the finger clap or what have you. Um, because what he gets told is standby two, take two, meaning standby, put your finger over the camera button labeled two and wait for me to tell you to go. The switcher would never take a camera live until the director had told him to. You gotta have pretty good reflexes in the concentration for something like that must be intense the discussion on the internet was you know why doesn't this guy just have a touch screen just give the director uh, an ipad type of thing and the reality is is he's doing more than just focusing on the cameras he's focusing on everything else around him and the switcher's job is to do more than just hit a button when he's told to hit a button. He's also a firefighter. He's responsible for making sure that if there's anything wrong, that that flame gets put out before it becomes a big issue. You don't want your director focused on that. If your director is already juggling a bunch of balls and he drops one, you don't want him reaching down to pick up that dropped ball because he's just going to drop all the other balls. Right. I was watching Saturday Night Live this weekend and David Byrne was on for the first time in 31 years. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, David Byrne. choreographed uh, appearance, uh, two, uh, two appearances, as a matter of fact. And it's funny that we're talking about this today because I was, I was thinking about, you know, how that was directed from the control room for, for Saturday Night Live, given that it was live. Well, because what they would have done, as I say, they would have had a bunch of rehearsals where they would have said, okay, here's the point where David Byrne does this thing. We want a camera shot that's a low angle, looking up his nose. They would make a mark of it, and they would actually have it down timed to the second. So once the song starts, the stopwatch starts, and they make you know notes on a page as to what point in time they want any given shot. And then the assistant director would be responsible for feeding the director what's coming up so that he can get ready. And the director's also telling those camera people what they need to do and when they need to do it. And again, if you didn't have an iPad, if you used an iPad and you just had the director cutting uh, and making all those decisions and not saying standby two, take two, none of the camera people would know whether or not they were on. None of the camera people would know that they're almost about to be on. Uh, and so there's this constant feed of information about what's happening and what's happening next that everyone gets to hear as a result of this. All right. So you, if you didn't see David Byrne, uh, you know, at one point there was... Uh, there must have been a dozen people on stage. And again, everything was intricately choreographed. Not just Byrne himself, but everybody else on stage was doing special things at certain parts of the, in certain parts of the song. I, I can't even imagine how you know the rehearsals that would have went into that. One of my favorite things about the Saturday Night Live is that there is um, a series of videos on YouTube about behind the scenes, and they talk about the control room as one of those behind the scenes stories. And it's fascinating to learn that the show is being cut and edited and retimed and rewritten 
while all of this is going on. Yeah. So while David Byrne is doing his thing, they're looking at the time. They're going, okay, we've got five minutes left for this guy. We're going to hit a commercial break and come back. We need to cut three minutes and 12 seconds. Saturday Night Live usually goes into the show heavy by as many as 10 minutes. Yeah, this is why a lot of those skits seem to just end. Right. They get rewritten on the fly. And, and the director has pointed out there have been times where in rehearsal, they're like, okay, now we're going to move to this thing. And then they, it gets cut for timing reasons. And in the back of his head, he's like, now this doesn't make sense anymore. But it's not his job as the director to advise the writers. And the writers are literally in the control room rewriting things as they go. For example, here's a skit. It's running long and we're just going to have to cut it after this line. And they got to make the call. Uh, and it's really tough because if you watch Saturday Night Live, you'll see that the players are looking off stage, so they don't necessarily have their lines memorized. They're looking at cue cards. Oh God, no! It's all cards. Yeah, it's yeah. all cards. So at some point, you know, there there may be a pause as they skip through a whole bunch of cards to reach what could be the most satisfying conclusion that they can get given the time that they have. Right. Or you see that puzzled look on their face because this wasn't what they had rehearsed. Right. I've, I've been to Saturday Night Live twice, and it yeah. is an amazing thing to watch with the crew, uh, you know, between... I mean, it's it's so... The, the dance in Studio 8H is incredible, and everybody is in tune with what is happening now and what's going to be happening next. And the thing about watching the crew is that they're so relaxed about it. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. we got, you know, three minutes, 30 seconds before we're back, Um and, and they just very carefully and methodically go through their business about setting up the next shot, moving to the next set, getting the actors on stage and ready to go and having the audience prime for when you come back from commercial. There's an institutional knowledge at Saturday Night Live behind the scenes. Many of the people who work there have worked there at least a decade, many of them 17, 18 years. And you know the system, you know how it works. And it's critical that you have the best of the best behind the scenes on a show like that because you can't knock it out of the park every week otherwise. And when there are episodes, and that's one of the big you know complaints about Saturday Night Live is that some nights are weak, some sketches seem to go on forever, some seem to get cut off at the last minute. It's amazing to me that they're capable of putting that show together every single week considering the organized chaos that goes on behind the scenes. It's true. It's true. And in fact, when... I was there on both occasions. Uh, I was more interested in the behind-the-scenes stuff, watching yeah. the, the, the crew yeah. work and watching the, the cast work than the actual skits themselves. Time now for Geeks and Beats Update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We lamented last week that we only had 38 Patreon fans helping support the show at about $54 an episode. <laughs> so what did Geeks and Beats listener Mark Wagner do? Went to the Patreon.com and doubled his per week contribution. To? To $2 per episode. <laughs> yeah, thank you. He is a member of the World's Worst Intern Program, and what makes it the world's worst is he pays us to work on the show, doesn't do any actual work in We ding his credit card every time we put out an episode, and all he gets in return is a thank you in the form of this kind of message. So now it's costing him twice as much to work on the show. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So Mark is one of our early um, listeners. He actually joined in August of of 2018. He said a lifetime support of $61, which means that we will stop dinging his credit card when we hit that $61 limit, which is one of the 
great reasons why we're using Patreon right now is that you don't have to worry about us, you know, pulling cash out of your Visa card forever. Uh, forever. You can set a limit, as Mark has done. So thank you for that, Mark. We want to say thank you as well to other Patreon patrons who have ensured that uh, we continue to put uh, this show together. Uh, Tim Heron, Tim Rickard, TJ Webb, Walter McVean, uh, Roland Wood, Rick C. in Oakville, Randy Redekop, Phil Mueller, and uh, others as well. Mm, I ran into some people the other week uh, very, very grateful about uh, Geeks and Beats. Oh, really? Yes. Well, you, you see how many downloads we get, but I mean, our audience is extremely engaged, and they come back week after week after week. And uh, it, it's, it's really gratifying when they come up to me and say, hey, I heard you talk about blank on a show three weeks ago. Right. And, um, you know, they're, they're very, very into it. I, I like to boast that we film uh, Roy Thompson Hall every week. About right. Yeah. But actually, it's wrong. Um, it is more than standing room only at Roy. As a matter of fact, the fire marshal would kick people out of Roy Thompson Hall. Hmm. We we have about a thousand listeners more than would fit into Roy Thompson Hall. So I think we need to find a new fake venue <laughs> to boast about. Uh, okay, yeah, well, I'll, I'll think of one. I mean, we need about a five thousand seat soft seater, and maybe some of them will end up being Patreon patrons. It would be fine. Ever wanted to be a Big Shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. I, I think this particular episode is going to be of particular interest to you and me, considering headphones are something that are such a critical tool of the trade. I am very particular about headphones. I have... At least a dozen of them here at home. And, uh, you know, they go back many, many years. I use them for, I do use it. I use different, I use different headphones for different purposes. Mm. So if I, I'm listening to music, you know, I'll, I'll uh, focus on one or two different pairs. If I'm using them in the studio, I'll use one or two different pairs. If I'm on the air, I'll use uh, usually Sony's which for whatever reason seemed to work best with me. So, yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a real aficionado when it comes to uh to headphones. I can appreciate why you might have a different set of headphones for when you're on the air because when you're on the air, you've got that element of energy you need to build and one of the ways you can do that is just by absolutely cranking the headphones and you need the proper seal around your ears and that's and, what i was getting to yeah. exactly because otherwise you get headphone bleed and so some headphones that might be awesome for listening to something are not good at all when you've got a microphone that could potentially feed that back absolutely not now even i will even use different headphones for when i'm in a studio doing voice work because that's a different type of feedback that you need through your ears did i ever tell you the story about the time i got in serious trouble on national network television because i asked a question of a female co-host and um i really wasn't thinking uh -oh. yeah um what is the industry nickname for a pair of headphones cans uh oh i see where this is going and Sennheiser had come up with a $55,000 pair of headphones. And I looked at this woman and I said, and, and I swear to God, as it came out of my mouth, I had no idea what I was saying until the words had already left my mouth and the eyebrow raised on her face. And you said... I said, would you spend $55,000 on a new pair of cans? <laughs> uh, I get off the air. 
the boss walks up and goes, excuse me, I need to speak to you. Did you HR. ask? Yeah, exactly. And the, the, at least fortunately, he had enough broadcasting experience to know <laughs> that I was just an idiot, uh-huh. not an asshole. Yeah. But man, I could have lost my job. You could have. I know. And it would have been a completely innocent mistake because a lot of people refer to the headphones as as cans. And they have for decades. Oh, my God. <laughs> so joining us now to talk about the history of the headphones is uh, the man who is the brainchild behind this week's sponsor. Uh, we call him Dr. C at Odyssey. He joins us now. Good to have you with us. Uh, yeah, I'm really glad to be with you guys. Um yeah, what, what what an intro, right? Going into a story like that, I apologize. <laughs> no, no problem. I mean, uh, I'm really veteran in this uh, field. I started uh, work with planar magnetic technology in the 70s when I bought my first magnetpan speaker. And I got hooked on technology. So from that point on, I was in Serbia at that time. I started to develop, to develop my own um, uh, drivers, uh, I built headphones, I built ribbon speakers, a whole bunch of stuff. Then I immigrated to Canada, and then that is where my real experience with mass production started. I joined a company called Sonogistics. Uh, they just started the uh, you know, R&D phase of uh, planar magnetic technology for multimedia speakers at that time. That was in uh, like 20-something years ago. And even from the 1970s, when you first got into it, headphones already had a long history, at least 70 years by that point. Because if I understand correctly, the the modern day headphone owes itself to the telephone because we didn't have amplifiers back then. So you'd have to wear headphones to hear the actual telephone. Exactly. What the... I kind of jumped really ahead uh, much faster. When I was in Serbia, and I, I know I, I bought several pairs of headphones, and first pair, I was a little kid, I got uh, as a present, uh, one of those with a uh, steel membrane that uh, was uh, with electromagnets. <laughs> For me, that was pretty fascinating just to hear the sound from headphones. Then, of course, they switched to normal dynamic headphones. They had Sennheisers, they had 8KGs. One time I purchased uh, one um, by accident, one um, headphones uh, made by Leaks in uh, Britain. And that was first uh, planar magnetic headphones that I heard. And it was uh, really eye-opening how much cleaner and clearer the sound was from... What what year is this? I would say 80, 80s, around kind of early 80s, something like that. Yeah. My, my first headphones were, like a lot of people, a pair of Koss headphones. And they were really big. They were really heavy. Yes. And after a while, they hurt not only my ears but my head. Yeah. I, <laughs> so by the time by the time we get to the '80s, we have headphones with drivers that are much much lighter and much more efficient than those giant cost things that I had. Well, Cost was essentially the one who invented the first stereo headphone. Am I right? In the fifties, yeah. Uh, yes, I had a pair of Cost headphones too. One that had inflated uh, earpods. That was very interesting. Uh, right. I'm. Oh, right. I forgot about those. Yeah, where we're, that was supposed to make it um, uh, much more comfortable to wear. Yes, but over time that thing gets a little kind of stiff, and uh, I saw the headphones. I didn't like them much in terms of sound quality. I mean, it was overall pretty good, but uh, uh, and then I exchanged this to uh, I mentioned that to Leaks uh, headphones. That is licensed from Yamaha, I believe, or some of those Japanese companies at that time that they were making. There was uh, uh, just few of them. It was very short time. I, 
in the 80s, uh, a few companies started to buy license from Yamaha or uh, Fostex and make their own planar headphones. So this is one of those. Can you, can you explain planar headphones to anybody who doesn't understand exactly what those drivers are? Of course. Normal headphones have a driver that is similar like a miniature woofer. So it has voice coil, magnetic structure around it, and um, some dome or, or cone that is attached to this. And uh, uh, the diaphragm was driven with the kind of ring, uh, air, very small ring area where what the coil was attached to the diaphragm. Uh, planar magnetic headphones are kind of opposite. Uh, it's open magnetic structure. You have diaphragm, very thin diaphragm with printed voice coil. And then magnets can be on one side or the another, uh, or on both sides uh, of the diaphragm. So if it's on both sides, we call it push-pull. So we are su suddenly talking about very thin uh, uh, headphones and uh, what is difference, much less moving mass. And mass is driven by force that is spread across the whole surface. So this is tension diaphragm with the much, much thinner material, so the transient response is much better, and sound quality is always better with the, these headphones than with the normal cone type or dynamic drivers. D does anybody make cone driver headphones anymore? Well, there is some chip, uh, but mostly they convert it to dome. That is, I, I kind of mix them. They are pretty much similar. It depends on the shape. You can shape the cone however you want. But it say it has a surround that is attached to the basket, and then it has this structure. You can see diaphragm that is formed some in some shape, and then voice coil that's very thin, and voice coil is embedded into a radial magnetic uh, field that is uh, generated by either permanent uh, ceramic magnets or lately neodymium magnets. Or it was uh, originally it was. Uh, Nickel, cobalt, samarium, that kind of stuff, very expensive. But right now everybody is really using neodymium magnets because uh, you can focus field with much smaller mass of the magnets. Yeah, speaker manufacturers are using a lot of those for uh, uh, for tweeters now. Yes. So help me understand this because I've got a, an old pair of headphones that I can plug in to a, an amplifier. And they seem to work better on older amplifiers than modern amplifiers. And it was suggested to me that impedance may play a role in that. Is that is that accurate? Impedance is critical because uh, every amplifier really likes certain range of impedance to drive. So most amplifiers that are built in the past were really for low impedance, 4, 8, or 16 ohms. Typically, headphones are 30 ohms up to a few hundred ohms. And if you have high impedance um, uh, headphones, then amplifier that is not really designed to drive high impedance, you either get low output, so there's not enough voltage, or you don't get very good sound. So it's a matter of over time, we've improved not only the headphones, but the amplifiers such that we don't need to have these high impedance headphones talking to a high impedance amplifier, or I guess opposite, the other way around. Uh, and, and so that's how we've seen that, that evolution, just because things have gotten that much better. We don't need to pump so much through the same line. Right. And now that we have neodymium magnets uh, driving diaphragms, uh, efficiency is much, much higher. So we are not stuck really with um, powerful amplifiers, even like a tens of milliwatts of power. It will drive uh, almost every headphones to pretty high level. 
you know, Alan, you referenced, you know, that Koss made, you know, the first real headphones that were, were mass marketed. Uh, Actually, not, not really. There, there was a guy back in the 1910s. Nathaniel Baldwin. That began making headphones for the U.S. Navy. Out of his house. Out of his house, out of his, on, on his kitchen table. And those were for, for listening to sonars and, and, and everything else. Uh, then we had the radio rooms on, on ships in those early days and needed headphones for those. Uh, it wasn't until we get to the 1950s when we have the hi-fi revolution that Koss starts making these headphones. I think it was 1957. And th- they weighed five pounds. I remember that. <laughs> and then uh, as we get into more sophisticated home high-fidelity equipment through the 1960s and early 1970s, we, we begin to get better-sounding headphones that didn't weigh 15 pounds and weighed, you know caused your neck to, to seize up. But then things changed, did they not? Like when, when we've talked about this in the past as well about how because music became portable, it changed the way we listened to it, and then it changed again when it became streaming music. In 1979, Sony released the Walkman, and the headphones that came with the Walkman very different in the technology used to get the sound into your earballs. In the past, it was not really available materials to make compact headphones. So either very poor ceramic magnets that was not even invented before Second World War. And then uh, kind of a material for diaphragms are kind of different and heavy. So when materials become available, so when ceramic magnets are invented, they became a nice commodity everybody was using it. Price went down and people could really scale headphones to smaller size to kind of make them to work. Then, um, of course, neodymium. First, the cobalt samarium uh, magnets uh, came uh, on the market, then neodymium. Wait, wait, wait. Did, let me just ask about the cobalt magnets. Uh, were they radioactive? No, no, no. <laughs> they're not. <laughs> just asking. Uh, but that was a huge jump in uh, magnetic uh, induction. So you can say ceramic magnets have uh, BR, the, the about 0.2 Tesla. Cobalt samarium 1.2.8, 0.9. With the neodymium magnets, we are right now 1.2, 1.3 Tesla. So it is, you can, if you use that number, you can scale, really use a much, much smaller amount of uh, magnets to achieve the same uh, performance. That is where we come to this era when uh, Sony came with their Walkman and small headphones. Oh, because those were such a big deal. Because they were so small and small, so light. Right. So they came up with this idea. Instead of having a large headphones that go over the ear, they came up with small headphones that can be really pushed against your ear. So sitting on your ear. So it was foam piece that was kind of creating a little cushion so it, uh, it's comfortable to wear. And uh, headphones were quite efficient, actually, because of the small mass and uh, kind of nice, good magnets. So... That was a time when it was possible to make uh, good uh, efficiency headphones with enough output and a very, very small form factor. Mm. So that brings us to the age of the earbud. How did that technology evolve? Well, I don't know exactly, but I think it's more connected to hearing aids. People realize that... uh, if uh, they plug something into ear canal directly, they can get much, much more output in the first place and then they can isolate uh, themselves from external noise and uh, that was used uh, really kind of as the example for some of the companies who try to make um, 
kind of good sounding devices that can be used for music reproduction. And uh, most of them really surfaced uh, first in Pro Audio, where people were using uh, this uh, to monitor uh, their signal instead of uh, stage monitors. Then slowly kind of turned uh, to mass market for hi-fi and everybody else. Oh, so the the music industry, which would use them on stage, so that you know you don't get the, the the bounce back from the big you know stadium rock environment. Those were the precursors to the AirPods that I now have today. Kind of. I mean, that was one of the first uh, real applications of in-ear uh, headphones. Stage monitors are a problem um, because uh, they leak and um, you say for a singer, you want to hear yourself only, but not other guys. So those monitors can never be directional enough to provide uh, the, the sound for... No, and they gotta be so loud. I mean, people are losing their hearing. Then they get so loud and then everything is uh, kind of accelerated. You need to have... Um, kind of better system to avoid feedback and it's a problem or leaking to another microphone where something else is recording so alan where did the where did the the stage in-ear headphone really start to take off like who, who really pioneered that just trying to remember the first time i saw those uh i guess it would be in the 90s that they began to replace the wedge monitors and the side fills that we saw on stage as, as people became more, well, a couple of things happened. First of all, people became more and more aware of the damage on-stage monitoring was doing to their hearing. And secondly, there was all the outboard gear that was being applied to uh, microphones and other stage instruments uh, where you would want to, there, there was a, be a, a millisecond or two delay if, for example, you were sitting it through uh, some sort of pitch correction software. Mm-hmm. So you didn't want to hear what was coming back immediately from, from the mix. You wanted to hear what was going on in your head. Otherwise, you get really, really mixed up. So I 90s, early 2000s, I think. Oh, yeah. There's nothing worse than hearing your own voice back in your headphones <laughs> at that slight delay. And then suddenly you start to slow down and sound like you're having a stroke. Yes, to try and catch up. And it doesn't work. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. Uh, no problem. It was really nice talking to you guys. Dr. C is the man behind Odyssey. I'm still telling you, we're starting to get more and more interest in us doing the show with video live streaming the raw content creation. Yeah. Uh, Antoinette Vanden Dickenberg said she'd watch even if you didn't have pants on because you'd probably be behind a desk. Uh, I would be behind a desk and you would see exactly how many glasses of scotch I go through uh, over the course of the program, <laughs> which I don't know if I want people to know about. I've just finished my, my second year, as a matter of fact, since we begin. I'd be more concerned about you having to put a shirt on. You know what? I'm, Two words, manscaping. I, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I've, I realize that I've, I've, I've got a crisis happening. Is uh, I'm running low on Japanese whiskey, and the reason I'm running low on Japanese whiskey is because I haven't traveled to the Far East recently. And the reason I haven't traveled to the Far East recently is because of the coronavirus. Yeah, 38% of Americans won't drink Corona beer because of this. What a bunch of idiots. I want to see the Venn diagram of the 38% who won't drink Corona beer and the 47% of Americans who support Donald Trump. Yeah. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. 
The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.